Well, good morning, new community. And thank you to uh, Pastor Michelle for that introduction and prayer. And thanks to Pastor David for this opportunity uh, to preach in his absence. Um, This morning, we're going to be in Psalm 63. And so if you do have your uh, copy of the scriptures, turn with me in your Bibles or swipe in your apps to uh, Psalm 63. This morning, we'll consider uh, from this psalm what it means to uh, develop a heart that is desperate for God. Psalm 63, beginning at verse 1, and you may, if you're able, to stand for the reading of God's Word. Beginning at verse 1, David writes... O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus, I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness. And my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. But I remember you on my bed. I meditate on you in the night watches for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Psalm 63, verses 1 through 8. These are the words of God. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for um, this morning, and we thank you for this time of worship with the community of faith. We are grateful for having had the opportunity to speak to you through songs of praise. It is now our prayer that you would speak to us through your word uh, and that we would receive it not as the words of men, uh, but as it is in truth, uh, the word of God. Lord, we don't need to hear from a finite man this morning. We, We need to hear from a timeless God. And so it's our prayer, Lord, that you would sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, In the world of sports and music, uh, there are certain titles, certain nicknames, if you will, that are only associated with one person. Whenever you hear these names, whenever you hear these titles, you automatically know who is being referenced. For example, the king of pop is... Michael Jackson. Uh, His heirness is Michael Jordan. The king of soul is James Brown. The queen of soul is Aretha Franklin. And then there is one who is simply known as the greatest. His name is Muhammad Ali. These exclusive titles are etched in history. 
forever linked to the legacy of their icons. Ironically, the writer of our text this morning has something in common with these icons in history. For he too has an exclusive title. A name only associated with him. Uh, The writer of our text this morning is David. And David is known as many things. He was a shepherd and a psalmist and a king. But arguably, most important of all, David is the only person in the entire span of the Bible to be called a man after God's own heart. We see this in Acts chapter 13 as Paul is reflecting on the history of Israel. And he says, and when he, referring to God, removed Saul, he raised up David to be their king of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. And so David is the only person in the entire span of the Bible to be called a man after God's own heart. Now this raises an important question. Uh, Why did David get this special distinction from God? What set him apart from so many other uh, godly men and women? Uh, Well, as you look throughout the landscape of scriptures, you, you know that it wasn't David's obedience that earned him this special standing. If you consider David compared to the other figures in the Old Testament, he's not necessarily a sterling example of obedience. And if you're really looking for someone who exemplified obedience, Daniel would probably be at the top of that list. Also, it wasn't his brilliant military success. I mean, this too wasn't one of a kind, right? Joshua had significant success in his military career, but he was never called a man after God's own heart. So what set David apart? I believe that what set David apart was his relentless desire to seek after God. Now, this truth is illustrated throughout the Psalms. For example, in Psalm 42, David says, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. In Psalm 104, verse 5, David says, Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. And so again, what we see here is that David's relentless desire for God, his passion, his hunger and thirst for God is undeniable. I think it's safe to assume this morning that, that many of us want a hunger and a thirst for God that, that mirrors David's. We want our knowledge of God to grow. We want our love for God to deepen. We want our faithfulness for God to remain steadfast. But often the missing ingredient in our walks with God is not sincere desire It's holy discontent. Paul would echo this truth in Philippians chapter 3. He says, around verse 10, he says, that I may know him. Right? And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. But then Paul says, not that I have already attained this. 
or have already come, become perfect, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Paul says, brothers and sisters, I do not count myself to have made it. But one thing I do, forgetting those things that are behind and reaching forward to those things that are ahead, I press forward to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now this is somewhat interesting. Because Paul is arguably the greatest Christian to ever live. And yet, despite his profound courage, despite his unwavering commitment to Christ, despite his humble servant leadership, Paul here is revealing that at the core of his relationship with Christ is a holy discontentment. Paul teaches us that although our past is redeemed and our future is secure, we must resist the temptation to place our lives on spiritual cruise control. Instead, we must seek to cultivate an attitude of fervency in which we pursue greater experiential knowledge of Christ, greater intimacy with Christ, and ultimately greater conformity to Christ. Because without godly discontentment, we are prone to become blind to our weaknesses, insensitive to our sin, selfish in our pursuits, confident in our flesh, lovers of this world. In his book, The Pursuit of God, A.W. Tozer says this, Complacency is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. Intense desire for God must be present or there will be no manifestation of God to his people. And so this morning we seek to discover what it means to cultivate a heart that is desperate for God. What it means to desire God above all. And so before we dive into Psalm 63, it's important that we understand Uh, The context from which David writes. Now, according to most uh, biblical scholars, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 15 uh, is the backdrop of Psalm 63. And in 2 Samuel chapter 15, we find a very compelling and heartbreaking story. Uh, In 2 Samuel chapter 15, David's son Absalom has uh, begun to employ a scheme to take over his father's throne. His plan does not include the force of an army. Instead, he relies on the power of manipulation. His shrewd strategy involved exploiting the weaknesses of his father's administration by making promises of better days ahead if he, Absalom, were king. So over time, his powers of persuasion proved to be strong. Verse 13, we read, That a messenger comes to David and says, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. In so many words, this messenger says, listen, the men of Israel, they've turned against you. You need to leave, David, and you need to leave now. And so fearing for his life, David orders the evacuation of his family from Jerusalem. The scriptures tell us that he then flees the city. 
he crosses the brook of Kidron and he goes into the wilderness. I imagine that as David scanned the vastness of the wilderness, it likely reflected the way his spirit felt. Dry and empty. Longing for a drop of refreshment. A fresh wind of relief. I imagine David wanted God to move. To speak. To do something, anything that would put an end on this period of his life. A fugitive in his own land. Running from his own son. The deceit was mystifying. The betrayal was heartbreaking. Yet in times like these, we often find moments of reflection. And so I envision David recalling simpler times. Time spent in green pastures. Time spent beside still waters. Times when the Songs of adoration filled the air. Times when God was his only companion. It was during these moments that David could release his soul into the arms of God to be healed and mended in the areas where he was broken, hurt, and weary. But now God felt distant. The pool of the world had separated David from that former closeness. And so as he stood looking in the direction from where he had come. The palace now completely out of view. A desperate David cries out to God. And in doing so, David shows us how we can develop a heart that desires God above all. The first thing we see is that if we're going to develop a heart that is desperate for God, we must first recognize the sufficiency of God. Notice what David says again in verse 1. He says, oh God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Now, one might expect David, his heart to be set on reclaiming the power of the throne. Or desiring the comforts of the palace or seeking the companionship of his wives. But here we find that David offers no petition to God. He does not seek relief from his circumstances. His heart is not after temporal or material blessings. Instead, he looks up with a new perspective, realizing that all the things he thought were important, the power, the prestige, the popularity, it was all fool's gold. It had slipped through his hands like melted snow. And he remembers that the most important thing in life is what it had been since the beginning. A restored relationship and renewed fellowship with God. And so David looks at the things in his life with a holy disregard. And David looks up to God with a holy desire. And he says, I long for you. I thirst for you. David's not desperate for anything that this life can supply. David is desperate for the supplier of life. In the city of Philadelphia, there is a a river that runs through the city. There's a section 
of the river walked, lined with boathouses called Boathouse Row. And across from Boathouse Row, there is a statue of a pilgrim with a Bible under his arm. Now, those who pass the statue by car never see more than the pilgrim. But if you're walking up the trail, you will find the source of the river. And there, over the river's source, is an inscription that simply reads this. Whosoever drinketh from this water shall thirst again. Whosoever drinketh from this water shall thirst again. So this inscription conveys a message that has echoed throughout the generations. The things of this world were never designed to satisfy our hearts. Only God can. Only God will. Now, don't misunderstand me. The world that God has created certainly is marked by brokenness, but it's also marked by beauty. The sight, sound, touch, taste, and feel of these earthly glories brings us much happiness and joy. But these glories cannot satisfy our hearts. Relationships cannot satisfy our longings for love. Careers will not satisfy our desire for significance. More money will not satisfy our need for security. More possessions will not fill the void of emptiness aching in our souls. No, these earthly glories that God created are to be like signposts. Signposts that point us to the one true glory that can ever truly satisfy our hearts. And what encourages me most about this, and what I hope encourages you as well, is that God revels, he relishes in playing this role in our lives. It's not simply that God can satisfy or that God will satisfy, but that God longs to satisfy. God delights in displaying to us the depths of his love. God takes pleasure in demonstrating the tenderness of his care. God finds joy in showing us the generosity of his provision. And so when we feel that pang of hunger and thirst that nothing else seems to satisfy, may we remember that it is God whom our souls crave. It is he alone who can quench the deepest longings of our hearts. So if we're going to develop a heart that is desperate for God, we must first recognize the sufficiency of God. Secondly, we learn from Psalm 63 that we must also cultivate a hunger for God. Notice what David says in verse 5. He says, my soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness. Now, a quick word, fatness simply means um, uh, the best of the best in this context, right? Obviously, we have a, in English, we have a different understanding of fatness, but in this context, it just means the best of the best. But I want to focus on this point where David says, my soul is satisfied. This may appear to be a contradiction to what David said in verse 1. 
Because in verse 1, David is expressing this longing, this hunger, this desire. But here in verse 5, he says, I'm satisfied. And so the question becomes, can longing and satisfaction coexist? Well, according to Jesus, there is a great deal of synergy between these two concepts. Jesus would say as he's preaching uh, the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Thank you, Amy, for that fresh wind of relief. (laughs) But he says, they shall be satisfied. And so here is the Christian life is a perpetual cycle of hunger and satisfaction, of longing and fulfillment. Uh, Let's see if I can explain it this way. So this past uh, Thursday, uh, Sharice and I uh, celebrated our 15-year wedding anniversary. Yes. Clap, clap for Sharice for, for putting up with me for, for 15 years. Actually, it's 18 years. We, we dated for three. We, so we've been together for 18, married for 15. Um, now, Sharice and I met in college. We were attending the same campus ministry. Um, and if you were to ask both of us, we have different stories of what happened after that. So I'm going to share with you the part of the story that we agree on. All right. Now, uh, ironically, I, I won't say providentially, but ironically, we lived in the same dorm. And literally, Sharice was a flight of stairs above me. Now, this is not ideal for a Christian couple trying to walk in obedience to God. Uh, but God was faithful. And so we would spend hours in this kind of like neutral lounge area and we would talk for hours and for hours and for hours and I remember leaving those conversations feeling fulfilled feeling satisfied but but I longed to see her again I longed to talk with her to spend time with her again so we would do it again the next day talk for hours and hours and hours and I would again leave Fulfilled and satisfied, but longing to see her again. This is what David is describing here in Psalm 63. Remember now, David has walked with God for years, but he thirsted for more. He thirsted for more. Now you may say, hey, listen, I I hear you, but... My, my appetite for God is, is not what it once was. I mean, I, I used to love reading my Bible. I used to love praying. I used to love going to church and serving and giving. I used to love all those things. But, but now that zeal, that, that passion, it's gone. Admittedly, I've become distracted by the things of this world. I've become discouraged by the cares of this world. My zeal, my passion for God is gone. So I would say two things in response to those of us who may be struggling to cultivate a hunger for God. Number one, our appetite for God increases 
when he becomes the object of our desires instead of our duty. Our appetite for God increases when he becomes the object of our desires instead of our duty. You see, unfortunately, we we all get to a place in our walks with Christ in which we see our time with him through the lens of obligation. We kind of come to treat God like a like a vegetable, right? In which it's and it's tough in this context, right? Because like there's people who are vegan and so like vegetables are not like what they used to be in terms of people not liking them. Um, But you get my point, right? And so we see our our time with him in that regard. It's like, I know this is good for me. I I just don't crave it. I I don't want it. I don't desire it. But here's the thing. God doesn't want to be the object of our obligations. He wants to be the object of our desires. And because of that, God is not standing with his arms folded saying, "Boy, I wonder when they're going to read their Bible again. I wonder when they're going to pray again. I wonder when they're going to start coming to church again. I wonder when they're going to start giving again and serving again. I, I I just wonder. No, 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 no. God is standing with his arms open. He's he's ready to welcome you. He's ready to spend time with you. God longs to be wanted. He longs to be wanted. And so I need us to understand that cultivating a hunger for God is not a spiritual exercise. It's not a spiritual practice void of reciprocity. No, God is chasing after us. God is pursuing us. And so even in those seasons when we wander, even in those seasons of failure, the refrain from God remains the same. I love you. I delight in you. I am devoted to you. And so we can come to God, we can walk before God with sustained joy because he is the lover of our souls. And so our appetite for God increases when he becomes the object of our desires instead of our duty. The second thing I would say is that our appetite for God increases when we starve competing appetites. Now, okay, Joy's not in here. Great. Okay, so this is something that I learned from my kids when they were younger. Sharice and I would be in the kitchen preparing a feast. That's a bit of an exaggeration, but we're preparing a meal. And we would say, hey, kids, you know, come down. It's time to eat. And the constant refrain from Joy was, hey, Dad, I'm not hungry. Like, what do you mean you're not hungry? I'm not hungry. Like, Joy, you haven't eaten anything today. Yes, I have. What'd you eat? Cheetos. Okay, Cheetos, that's not not a meal. Had Cheetos, I had had fruit snacks, I had all these different things. So she's just been snacking throughout the day. And so now she no longer has an appetite. And so could it be that our appetite for God has diminished 
Because we are snacking on the things of this world. So competing appetites could be anything. Excessive amounts of time on social media or a level of busyness in our lives that simply leaves us exhausted. So what in your life, who in your life is causing your appetite for God to diminish? Our appetite for God increases when we starve competing appetites. Thirdly and finally, David says, if we're going to cultivate a relation, or a, a heart that is desperate for God above all, recognize the sufficiency of God, cultivate a hunger for God. Thirdly, he says, remember the faithfulness of God. David says in verse 3, your loving kindness is better than life. And in verse 6, he says, I remember you on my bed. I meditate on you in the night watches, for you have been my help. And so here we learn that what fuels David's desire for God is the faithfulness of God. Right? By rehearsing God's specific goodness toward him, David's passion for God grows stronger. Now, it's not surprising that when David speaks of God's faithfulness, he uses the Hebrew word hesed. Now, the English word could not sufficiently capture its meaning, and so therefore, hesed is often translated as loving kindness or goodness or steadfast love. But Hesed is not a mood or an emotion of God, but Hesed speaks to God's faithful love in action. And because Hesed is part of God's character, it never changes. And David knew this to be true. He could reflect on 1 Samuel chapter 16 when, when he was the youngest of his brothers. No one believed he had the potential or the pedigree to be king. But God said, listen, I'm not looking at the outward appearance. I'm looking at the heart. I choose David. David could look back to 1 Samuel chapter 17 when he stepped onto the battlefield with no armor and in the minds of many, no chance against Goliath. But God gave him victory. David could even look back to 2 Samuel chapter 11 when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then orchestrated the murder of Uriah. He experienced God's discipline, but he never doubted God's love. And so when David writes about the faithfulness of God, it is not poetic exaggeration or theoretical theology. Beneath the beauty of his words lie solid convictions, convictions formed through a unique lived experience with the goodness and favor, the unfailing love and unending kindness of a faithful God. And so in this regard, Psalm 63 is not only a call for us to run after God, but it's a call for us to remember God. It's a call to remember the deadly disease known as sin. It's a call to us to remember Jesus who stood in our place. It's a call to remember that we who were once sinners are now saints. That we who were once enemies of God are now friends of God. That we who were once spiritually at war with him now stand eternally at peace with him. And when we are tempted to think that his faithfulness is only regulated to the past, May we remember that God's hesed, his faithful love is unchanging. 
You see, his plans have not changed. We can be sure that he who has begun a good work in us will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. His love toward us has not diminished. He still declares that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. His care for us has not faltered. He still invites us to come to him when we are weary and heavy burdened, for he will give us rest. And his power toward us has not fainted. He promises that his strength is made perfect in our weakness. And so like David, may we rehearse God's specific goodness toward us. Our desire for God is fueled by the faithfulness of God. As we prepare to, to close, you know, much has been said today about longing for God. But as we prepare to leave, I, I really want to reiterate a point from earlier, and that is longing for God is not a spiritual practice that is separate from reciprocity. God, even before we long for him, God is longing for us. God is chasing after us. And yes, our lives will be marked by stumbles. Our lives will be marked by seasons where we fall and fall again. But the refrain from Jesus remains the same. I delight in you. I am devoted to you. I desire you. God declares himself to be the lover of our souls. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We pray that you would seal these truths to our hearts for our growth, for the good of others. And ultimately, for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.